Hello, and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. Well, we're talking about three chunky things today. First one, levelling up. Two words which have done a lot of heavy lifting for Boris Johnson over the last two years, but words which have seemed to mean pretty much whatever people wanted them to mean. But today, in one of those incredibly well-briefed set-piece speeches, the Prime Minister finally told us what it means to level up. Or has he? We're going to dig deeper. And levelling up was, of course, a promise that was big in the last Conservative manifesto, as was the pledge to spend 0.7% of GDP on aid. But not all promises are equal, and this week the government won a vote to slash the aid budget. Temporarily, ministers say. So what does that mean, and what does the saving mean for Boris Johnson for his Chancellor? And then we're finally going to turn to a subject that is very familiar to fans of the IFG, how to reform government. Because there's a new paper out, not by us, and... It calls for all kinds of radical reforms and warns that government will fail if it doesn't embrace change. We'll explore what the Commission for Smart Government is saying and give it our stamp of approval or otherwise. So joining me for this today in our virtual studio is Alex Thomas, who leads our civil service work and used to work in the Cabinet Office. Hi, Alex. Hello, Bronwyn. We've also got Gemma Tetlow, our chief economist, and she's back with us. Hi, Gemma. Hi, Bronwyn. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Ben Chu, Newsnight's economics editor. Hi, Ben. How are you? I'm very well. Hi, Bronwyn. What's it like to be back in the world of broadcast after a little time in print? (laughs) I'm very pleased to be out of my house is the answer to that. I was confined for a year working from home. So being out and about is a great uh, privilege. So levelling up. Well, football didn't come home. No party at Downing Street. No bank holiday. So the big moment of the Prime Minister's week was the speech about a slogan that has won plenty of victories for the Conservative Party in recent years. That's levelling up. Gemma, you and your team have been doing a lot of thinking about what levelling up actually means. Are we any clearer? The focus of the Prime Minister's speech this week seems to have been reassuring people in the South that levelling up, which has tended to focus on priorities for the Midlands and the North, doesn't mean that they're going to be levelled down or, or ignored. I'm not sure, though, that we got that much further in understanding really what the government's objectives are with levelling up. It still seems to cover quite a broad range of objectives from quality of public services to economic performance of different areas to whether your high street looks nice and is somewhere you feel safe going out and living your life. And so I think there are there are still lots of tensions for me in some of what the government is talking about. And I'm not clear yet exactly where they're going to be focusing their attentions. As you said, the government's, you know, recoiling a bit from its its by-election performance and, and trying to reassure its own MPs as well as others that they're not going to be leveled down or neglected in some way. But if you if you look at levelling up, is it something that we can actually measure? As it stands at the moment, no, I don't think it is. Too many things have been talked about as being part of levelling up um, for us really to be able to know what the right metrics are to be looking at. I mean, some of the areas where I see there there being tensions are, is this about parts of this, is the main focus here parts of the country, which, which is usually how it's talked about. But it is true to say that there are parts of the country where productivity is higher, output is higher. But actually, that doesn't map on to the circumstances of people who live in all of those areas. There are people on low incomes, unemployed, children in poverty in London, just as much as there are in other parts of the country. So, for example, should our measure be are the life chances of people across the country better 
or should the measure be are there more jobs in particular towns or non non city areas in particular parts of the country all right, so, so a lot of room for debate there. And of course, many of these numbers might have gone the wrong way in the past year. It has been such an extraordinary year. Ben, can you tell us anything about the numbers here in, in terms of spending commitments? Is there anything solid we can get hold of? Well, I think we're still waiting for that. I think it's clear, as um, a lot of commentary has been making obvious, is that there's a battle going on between Number 10 and uh, Downing and, and uh, the Chancellor about spending commitments. And I think we're really going to see the outcome of that in the spending review. I, judging from the Prime Minister's speech today, there wasn't any new money actually devoted to anything. I think those those commitments and uh, are, are still to come and, and there will be a result of a battle. But I'd just like to um, talk a little bit about the definition. I think Jem is right. It is a very amorphous concept levelling up at the moment. And we didn't get that much closer to it in terms of really defining it. But I think we edged closer because it was interesting that um, Boris Johnson said levelling up for me is we will begin to see living standards raised, opportunity spread, improve public services and restore pride in local communities. There's obviously no metrics attached to those, but I think just articulating that those are the things that this government, he himself, sees as the important things to be to be uh, uh, as a, as a metric of levelling up is is important in itself. And he said another thing, which I think was quite significant. He said, "Levelling up for me will be gains, or when when the gains are the greatest amongst the poorest." groups. And I haven't heard him say that before. And I think that's worth dwelling on a little bit and thinking, you know, that that that's really sort of summing up where he's coming from. So I think we, we edged a bit closer to a definition, although we're, we're still some way from a, a clear, clearly defined one. That's really interesting. I, I'm sure you're right to pick on that phrase, which is new to me too. Um, and you can see why levelling up has become popular, even if people are a bit sceptical. You've got levelling, you've got the idea of, of, of more fairness, you've got up, you've got, you've got the, the, the aspiration there. Would you call this Johnsonism? Well, Johnsonism is so many things, and it, it, it varies which day you're talking about. There's a lot of boosterism in Johnsonism, I think, which is generally looking on the bright side, talking up the positive. And I think we had a lot of that in the speech. Also, Johnsonism seems to be trying to be all things to all people. <laughs> as we know, you know, he was a uh, big emphasis as was previous, as briefed uh, on this speech was that it's not jam spreading. You don't have to knock people down to build people up. He didn't quite say it's about having your cake and eating it, but that was the kind of gist of, uh, of, of parts of his speech. Certainly. I think there is a certain amount of avoiding trade-offs, because if you are talking about um, levelling up as something which is has a redistributive element to it, at least, that will be taking from some people and giving to others. And that might be good for the country in the long term, but in the short term, some people are going to have to pay for it, and that will probably be the more prosperous parts of the country. But he was very keen in his speech to, to sort of deny that trade-off. Uh, and it, will be, it remains to be seen whether that's going to be reflected in policy or not. Really interesting point. Alex, what do you make of this way that it's very hard to define levelling up? Does that matter? It matters for sort of good government and good policy. I don't know how much it matters for good politics, at least in the short to medium term. I mean, I was watching the, the Prime Minister uh, earlier, and one of the things that struck me was the the tension between good politics and good government that is inherent in this in this phrase. Good good politics is about being all things to all people, 
reassuring your uh, sort of more traditional backbenchers not being tied down to clear metrics that uh, you can then be held to account for. Good government is almost the opposite in this instance. It's about setting priorities, recognising the trade-offs, uh, having clear objectives that you you can then measure. So uh, there's there's a real tension in that, that that Johnson is trying to stride. I think that t- today was more about the politics than about the policy, uh, which is not that unusual for government. You know, we had Theresa May's burning injustices. We had David Cameron's big society. These sort of phrases are useful, but they do need some kind of substance attached to it. Other, other than, I mean, uh, Ben was right, there weren't, weren't many new spending commitments apart from perhaps... 50 million pounds to, to new football pitches. But the other sort of bit of meat in the speech was about devolving power. And Johnson almost made a sort of open offer to, to mayors and, and, and local leaders to come to him and say, bring me your plans for devolving power to you and I will um, I, I will consider them. And that, that might be what levelling up is. Uh, he, he did only seem to address that to conservative local leaders, though, rather than uh, Labour ones. So, so there's still quite a strong strain of centralising running through running through the government as well i think but again i think you're absolutely right to pick up on that bit because it's something we've been looking out for you know is the government really prepared to share out power and money to at the local level or is it trying to run um all this kind of distribution of, of money and resources from the center uh, as, as you said uh, the government is, is nervous of creating lots of labor city fiefdoms but does want uh, local areas to take more charge of this. Gemma, just perhaps give us a flick of the past of this. This isn't the first time a government has tried to um, help parts of the country that are left behind or whatever phrase you use, is it? No, it's certainly not. And I mean, this is something that previous Institute for Government work has has looked at, that these these aspects of policy, regional policy, industrial strategy, of which there's kind of a, a strong um, thread through the levelling up agenda, are things that successive governments have tried to improve. Um, the UK has had a really long-standing issue, certainly since uh, the 1980s and the decline of manufacturing in the Midlands and the North, of those parts of the country having lower productivity, lower output than London and the Southeast, which have really thrived in many ways from the kind of the the concentration of new service industries in those areas. So these aren't new problems. And I suppose question is, is this government sort of learning from what's been tried before and building on that rather than trying to come up with an entirely new strategy in these areas? Ben, what do you, if you put yourself in your, your Newsnight role, what do you tell people, viewers, about what, what's it, it's reasonable to expect about this? These, these are old problems, and you get people writing every now and then, look, it's impossible to bring back jobs to every part of the country if the industry has left there. What, what's it reasonable to expect? Well, I think the point I would make is that it's a long slog. Leveling up is not something that's going to be done, certainly not overnight and probably not in one parliamentary term. It's really about productivity gaps in different places. And those productivity gaps result from lower skills and and an ecosystem problem there. So it's not something you can put right straight away. You can tackle it, but it will take a long time, a lot of patient investment and the danger is that if the government is sort of suggesting that it can be done quickly, people will have a false impression and they will be disappointed and there will be a backlash against the proper measures which are being put together on skills uh, and in other areas and in devolution. Boris Johnson made a very interesting point um, when he said that the governments need to be patient and need to not chop and change policy. But of course, it was this government that uh, scrapped the Industrial Strategy Council, which was very admired 
amongst policymakers and amongst uh, economists after just three years for no what didn't seem to be a very decent rationale. So the rhetoric might be in the right place, but you've got to judge these governments by their actions, not what they say. So do you think it will be useful for Boris Johnson at the next election to say we've levelled up some areas? No, I think the key, the government clearly understands that there has to be something that the uh, you know the people in these areas can point to and say, look, we've benefited from that. So I think that's why you're seeing this emphasis on high streets, on crime, on local quality of life issues. And they are important, but they are not the fundamentals of economic levelling up. That's the key. That's going to come from skills. That's going to come from infrastructure. That's going to come from business investment. Those things are going to take a a lot longer. So this government has to effectively ride two horses if it's going to be effective in levelling up. It's got to make people feel better about their localities in 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 the near term, but also do the kind of hard, heavy lifting that's going to improve them their quality of life and their productivity, etc., in the medium and longer term. And as you said, it does take uh, a long time, very often for these things. Alex, we're, we're told that the speech is going to kick off a summer of talking to people about all this ahead of publishing the white paper in the autumn. From your experience in government, how does this kind of consultation actually work out? Variably. Uh, I think there are some really good examples of uh, consultations that sort of engage and energise uh, people who are interested. More often than not, though, they're fairly sort of uh, pre-cooked exercises. We'll see how this proceeds. I mean, in principle, it's a, it's a good idea to do that. Uh, it would be good to do something a bit more than sort of sticking out a document or two and uh, and seeing how people respond to it and uh, get under the skin of these things a little bit more, understand what's really going on in the local communities and areas that the, that the government wants to wants to target. And then the the, the moment will be the, the, the white paper or similar that, that comes out later in the year, because that's that's the moment really to judge, I think, whether there's substance and detail behind all of this, because that could be quite a sort of general bland document, or it could have some really crunchy stuff in it that resolves some of these trade-offs that we're talking about. Those white papers really vary quite a bit, don't they? Yes, you get you get sort of totemic ones that really set uh, set direction, you know, uh, from beverage in the 1940s or ones that sink without trace. And so uh, we'll, we'll see what happens with this one. Let's turn now from the UK trying to help its own communities to the help it gives overseas. Less so this year, though. Earlier this week, the government won a vote, really narrowly, to cut the UK aid budget, a move which was slated by former prime ministers, the aid community and the opposition, but one which Chancellor Rishi Sunak says will save vital billions and which he's then going to reverse when finances allow. Alex, let's begin with the politics. Will voters care that Johnson has broken a manifesto promise or will they see a, you know, a very pragmatic move? Some will care a lot, but I suspect the majority uh, won't. And the government clearly thinks it's onto a winner uh, with the uh, charity begins at home type arguments that it's been making. But I think there is, uh, it reflects a little bit the sort of tension between good politics and good government that I was talking about earlier, because there is uh, a question here about how in the medium and long term, this decision undermines the government's objectives, whether that's on climate change for the uh, COP conference that's coming up later in the year, if we're if we're cutting our uh, aid support on that, that will undermine some of the things we're trying to achieve there, or the sort of enormous soft power uh, that the, the UK and uh, uh, as global Britain might want to deploy through its aid program. So politics, yes, and I and, and I get that. I think this stores up problems uh, for the next few years. I also think the rebels uh, in the Conservative Party were right to suspect a bit of a 
treasury trap in the concessions that supposedly were given. That almost seemed uh, more likely to lock in an aid cut for the long term than it did to uh, to provide a route out to, uh, back to back to 0.7%. Just explain the treasury trap to us and, and how this could in fact lock in these cuts. The Treasury set a couple of uh, tests about uh, uh, when the government's uh, books were looking more uh, balanced. Uh, I mean, the question of when in in, in the past few years uh, those tests have actually been met, which uh, they haven't very often. Government can define these in a number of uh, different ways. And and, uh, uh, so I think there's a the Chancellor is going to be able to say, well, the time isn't quite right yet. We haven't met the uh, tests for UK government starting to pay off its deficit uh, yet. And uh, so we better carry on with 0.5%. Very neat. And he clearly has built in that kind of room. John Major, Theresa May, David Cameron, they all lined up to criticise the move. Should Boris Johnson mind? I don't think he'll mind from them. You can't be terribly comfortable having your predecessors criticise uh, this. I don't think that will be top of the worry list in uh, in, in Downing Street. Uh, I think they'll be more concerned about the restiveness it shows on the Tory backbenchers and when other issues come up that are more likely to uh, uh, hit home with constituents in the shires and traditional Tory areas, whether that's planning or some of the economic trade-offs that we were talking about earlier. It, it, it stores up trouble for the, uh, uh, for the rest of the party. Parliament. And I think that will be their main concern rather than uh, than former prime ministers. Interesting. Gemma, what are the numbers we're talking about here? So the, the aid cut that's being talked about is £4 billion a year. Total public spending is around sort of £800 billion a year in, in normal times, setting aside the, the COVID spending. So it's not a huge amount of money. On the other hand, it, it's just a little less than 1p on the basic rate of income tax. So this is a decent amount of money for the government. I suppose the reason that it's less helpful really is that the government does face a lot of spending pressures at the moment and some really difficult um, choices probably coming up in the spending review about how to allocate money, Um, things like the need for more spending on on social care, pressure for more spending on healthcare and things. But most of those pressures it faces are really long-term permanent spending pressures. So saving £4 billion a year for the next few years until things get back to balance doesn't actually help you enormously in, in sort of easing any of those other difficult um, trade-offs that, that the Treasury is going to be imposing across government. Point we, um, we're going to come back to. But ben, just take us into what these cuts have actually meant. As Gemma's saying, in this scheme of things of government finances, not a huge amount of money, but the rebels have been concerned that they, the cuts really hit some things very hard, haven't they? Yes, and there's a long list of um, uh, good charitable projects which are going to be denuded of funds because of this cut, and including some humanitarian uh, spending in uh, in countries like Yemen. So it's um, th- yeah, the, the the impact has been well publicised. I'm quite interested as well, though, about what the criteria for this aid cut being restored tells us about perhaps what the new fiscal rules are going to be for the Chancellor, because obviously they were they were scrapped because of the pandemic, but they are devising new ones. Uh, and as Alex was saying, they are about current budget balance and debt falling as a share of GDP. It's A lot of people are saying that's likely to be what the new overall rules are for the public finances. And that would be quite ironic in a way, because that's pretty much what George Osborne in, um, implemented in 2010 when they came in in the era of austerity. So it's possible that we are going back to the future when it comes to uh, the new fiscal rules that Sunak will, it will impose. And what do you make of the discussion we've just been having about whether there's um, 
you know, just growing pressure from the uh, the Treasury coming on all kinds of government spending. Yeah, I think that's that's clearly right. And looking at the politics and the economics of the cut, Gemma's right. It's it's pretty insignificant in terms of the overall public finances. And it's not a if it's not a permanent, then it doesn't really help you uh, put those uh, in better order. My sense is that the the cut was imposed at a time when there was so much public spending increasing because of the pandemic, and the Chancellor was pretty worried about the signal that it was sending. So it was almost a symbolic cut. And other people have said this as well, that it was a sign that, look, we are not just spending doesn't just go in one direction. We are capable of taking tough choices. And given that public, uh, given that aid spending was relatively unpopular, it seemed that this was a good way of showing that the uh, that the Chancellor uh, could make decisions in the other direction. And that's why we got it, I think. Yeah. And as you said, relatively unpopular and that a lot of people seem to feel, according to polls, um, look, that's spending money outside the UK that we'd like spent within the UK. People who do care about it care an enormous amount, uh, which is why there, there, there has been the the row. Gemma, these programmes um, that have been switched off very quickly, can they be switched on again if finances improve? So I think this is really why there's been so much outcry about these cuts is because they came in so quickly and in a sense the the cut has been tighter in some areas than might first be obvious because some of the UK's aid spending was pre-committed to things like money going to the World Bank, money going through the EU uh, aid programmes and things. So the bits that were actually still left within the government's direct control that they could cut quickly were a relatively small number of things. And therefore, you've seen programmes either getting cut completely or having huge sort of 80% cuts to their funding. Once some of those things cease to happen it is going to be harder to get those back up and running. And because the cuts have come in so quickly, obviously we've seen some other funders step in to try and save some of those programmes. But it's not easy for those charities and others who are delivering those programmes to find alternative sources of funding to allow them to keep going with those projects. And once they've gone, people move elsewhere, you lose the infrastructure that was there on the ground it won't be easy to restart a lot of these. Um, so it may well be that there are somewhat more, more permanent hits to this. Alex, what, what about future rebellions? It was reported that a number of the, the uh, would-be re- rebels were bought off with the, the hope of ministerial jobs. That, I mean, that is the very nature of um, Westminster politics in some ways. What do you think? Yes, well, as, as I said earlier, I think there are rebellions stored in, and there's also a group of uh, ex-ministers who won't be bought off by uh, future prospects of getting a job because uh, they they don't harbour those uh, ambitions anymore. I mean, classic uh, whip tactics. It was a pretty efficient whipping job from the government on this vote. I think those who are expecting a sort of profusion of jobs are likely to be disappointed, uh, given that Johnson so far has shown himself pretty loath to reshuffle his team. He doesn't seem to like sacking people or moving people around that much which is not in itself a bad thing if you've got the right people in the right jobs but um, as the parliament goes on and uh, the longer Johnson is prime minister the uh, disappointment and uh, disillusionment among the backbenchers can only increase his problems in terms of the parliamentary arithmetic despite that majority of 80 will get worse. Okay let's turn to something in our heartland for our third topic, and that's improving government. The Commission for Smart Government, which is an initiative close to the government with the backing of GovernUp, a long-running research project about better government, something we, of course, care about, has come out with a new report. 
it set out its recommendations this week, and we in turn published our response. Alex, you were writing about it, and the Commission says the government must reform or fail. Do you? Do we? Agree. Fundamentally, yes. Uh, I think this is a moment for reform. I think it's really important that the government, the whole government, which is the civil service ministers and uh, to some extent the wider public sector, take a look at how they've done over the last few years, most obviously in the pandemic response, but also through the response to Brexit and all of the other challenges uh, and and problems that governments have had to tackle over the last last few years. So definitely, yes, a a moment for reform and a moment for change. And there are lots of really interesting ideas in this uh, Commission for smart government paper. Does the fact that Michael Gove spoke at the launch mean that the government backs these ideas or are ministers kind of floating them to see what the response is? I think it's probably more the latter. Uh, I thought Michael Gove was very interesting at the um, at the launch when he was very positive and in that sort of you know wonderful Govian way, sort of created a sort of very uh, upbeat mood around these uh, these proposals. But he didn't commit to anything. Uh, he was quite wary about saying yes, we will definitely uh, you know uh, take take these ideas on board. He did say that the the government would evaluate them against their own plans, which were published about well, I don't know, three or four weeks ago now uh, in their declaration on government reform. So they'd do a sort of assessment to say. Well, whether there was anything new in this or whether they could meet the same objectives, but in a, in a different way. One of the really striking things was a suggestion of a prime minister's department. Is this a good thing or is it just a way of giving the prime minister more power or both? So it's I mean, a more effective centre is definitely a good thing. And we've been talking about this for uh, quite a long time uh, now. And I, so I definitely agree with this uh, paper that the centre needs to sort itself out and that in both needs to better support the Prime Minister in making decisions and then hold departments and the rest of government to account for delivering the objectives of the whole government. Whether a Prime Minister's department is the answer, I'm a bit sort of agnostic on it. I think the uh, the name would be could potentially be symbolically important, um, but more important is sorting out the structures that, that sit around the Prime Minister. One of the really interesting things that was a bit underreported in this uh, in this Commission for Smart Government work was the proposal to create what they called a Treasury Board which would be chaired by the Chief Secretary to the Treasury and would uh, come up with a government plan that would then have authority uh, to uh, over, over all other departments. I think that is uh, quite an interesting way of getting a bit more coherence to the government's uh, uh, agenda and work. Whether it would actually work, I have my doubts, given the Chief Secretary of the Treasury is a relatively junior minister uh, and Departmental Secretaries of State will be fiercely protective of their remits. But definitely a kind of closer line-up between the Treasury and the Chancellor and number 10 would be a powerful tool to, to push things through, relates to levelling up and, uh, and the other things we've been talking about. So, Ben, on this point about the Treasury Board... Do you think it's realistic? Alex has just sketched in very delicately the kind of opposition, but you can see why no Chancellor or Senior Secretary of State would really want their room to manoeuvre being constrained by a board chaired by the Chief Secretary to the Treasury. Yes, I'm. I'm very struck covering this this uh, area that the um, the tensions between Downing Street in within Downing Street between Number Ten and Eleven have really come to the fore again, and it's leading to some quite suboptimal decisions. I think in in a, in a whole host of areas. So I think. Anything which can can address that and make it run more effectively will, of course, be welcome. But as we all know, this is a very, very old problem. It's been attempted to there've been attempts to solve it over the decades and haven't really got anywhere. Um, On the broader issue, I think um, Michael Gove's Ditchley speech last year, which was very well received, uh, made a lot of good points about reform of the civil service. And I think this this new report today sort of follows that up and, and, and adds to it. 
But I think what's missing in sometimes in these discussions of how could the civil service be more effective is how could the political leadership, of, or rather how could the interaction of the politicians be more effective? Because if the civil service is not getting clear directions and if it's being asked impossible things, then of course it's not going to perform very well. And I think sometimes the focus needs to be on the quality of the, polit- the politicians as well as the civil servants. That's a really important point, and it's one that Michael Gove has made in um in in the some of the the, the, uh, the declaration he put out recently, and um, indeed in his speeches on this, quite a few speeches now he's racking up. What did you make of one of the suggestions in this of appointing ministers from outside Parliament? That is not MPs; they don't have to be a member of the Lords, but just bring in experts or cronies, others would say, and they can be ministers. Personally, I'm quite agnostic about the uh, the idea. I have no strong objection on principle. And I think most people would say if it leads to more effective government, if more effective civil service and more effective, you know, uh, administrative government machine, then what's the objection to it? I think I think probably the broader issue, though, is is devolution, actually. It's about taking decisions uh, and running the machine closer to local people, uh, tapping into the knowledge and the uh, Etc. Of, of local communities, and, and I think you know that's going to be key. The leveling up. There was supposed to be a devolution white paper. It's now becoming a leveling up white paper. That is going to be a key moment uh, in terms of what uh, in this whole agenda. That's really a really important point which you brought in again, and thank you for that, Gemma. What do you make of all this? I mean, I tend to agree with Alex's sort of agnosticism around the Treasury Department. I mean, the the Treasury plays a quite crucial role in planning spending across government in sort of trading off priorities across different areas and in challenging departments to justify uh, why they need money for particular things and whether they could achieve more uh, with less. And I think you you don't want to lose that power of the Treasury. And it, by moving that into the Cabinet Office, perhaps you could get better coordination between the priorities of government and ensuring that, that you have that challenge function. But I think if this is somehow about trying to break away from that financial constraint that the Treasury imposes, that you shouldn't and won't achieve that with a Treasury board. If this is about, I guess, tackling some of the, the perceived problems that we've had, for example, um, with uh, the, it appears that the Treasury wasn't willing to fund things like um, catch up in schools, um, which did seem a slightly short sighted perspective on on cost versus long term reward. It needn't be the case that you couldn't have some slightly more um, sensible debates about that going on with those functions sitting in the Treasury. I don't think you need to move them um, into a prime minister's department to address some of those issues. So I think it, it slightly, as, as Alex, a bit agnostic about the, the structure of this, although there are clearly things that could be improved. On, on the point about bringing in ministers um, who aren't elected or aren't in the Lords, one thing for me is it seems it, it's it's relatively easy for governments to appoint people to the Lords with the objective of having them as a minister. So that doesn't seem a huge change from where we are at at the moment. The other thing, which I suppose we picked up in various pieces of IFG work, is around scrutiny of who's providing advice and making decisions um, within government at the moment and the, the slightly cloudy roles of special advisors and others who are um helping to make decisions. And I suppose appointing people as ministers, there is a more clear accountability structure and challenge for them uh, in Parliament. Um, so that, that might be one benefit. That's, that's interesting. I mean, it's a, it's a sort of eye-catching structure reforms, but they don't always make that much 
difference. But I think people might be sceptical of the, the the minister's move. As you said, it doesn't. You, you, the government can put them in the Lords, but then that adds to some of the problems about the Lords getting bigger and bigger and questions about who's who's in it. Alex, what's lacking in these plans, in your view? Um, so I think there are some sort of specific things that I, w- I would either disagree with or are missing. Um, I think the proposal to move ministers out of their departments and stick them in a New Zealand style uh, sort of single building that uh, where they could all uh, plot and scheme or sort of seamlessly coordinate. Uh, all the ministers there sort of sit together and, and link, link up, which is obviously a good thing, but then that cuts them off from their departments uh, and knowing what's really going on in the in the world. Um, so th- there, are, I mean, there are a number of other, other points that we could kind of pick through. So there are some sort of interesting, but I think slightly misguided suggestions there. The really fundamental gap, and it's not surprising it's a gap because it's really, really hard, is thinking about the responsibilities and accountabilities of ministers, the responsibilities and accountabilities of civil servants. So in a way, some of what Ben was saying, and how you improve the clarity of uh, responsibility uh, and how in, in a way where that doesn't sort of separate out the interests of ministers and civil servants, but does bring more distinctness to uh, who is responsible for what in in government and that's really really hard we and others have been grappling with it for a long time but both this paper and the uh, uh, government's uh, own declaration uh, sort of set out an aspiration uh, in that direction which is a, an interesting and good thing but don't, uh, don't don't get close to nailing it well uh, a really interesting point which we will follow up on very interesting point you also make about um, if you take ministers out of the departments, they might be closer to each other, but then cut off. I know when we are doing uh, advice privately to shadow cabinets about preparing for government, one of the things we try and get across is how different it will feel from when they're all squashed together in some room, no longer smoke-filled, and have to go out into their departments and how do they communicate with each other. As you said, the rever- if you reverse that, you've got um, the flip side of that problem. Well, we'll have to see. Um, ben, just just a flick to, to wrap this up for us. How serious do you think the government is about these changes? I mean, in a year of coronavirus and a year of doing Brexit and all this, the government has been going on about this quite a bit. I think they are serious. It's clearly a thread that runs through things that Michael Gove said, that Dominic Cummings said when he was in government. And I think we should also shouldn't forget the political context to this. There is going to be the public inquiry into the handling of the coronavirus pandemic. There will be a lot of in, uh, analysis and uh, uh, of the performance of the civil service through that and the performance of ministers. So there will be a I suspect a desire from some in, uh, on the political side to sort of present any failings as a result of the civil service rather than ministerial decisions. We shouldn't um, get caught in that trap, in that framing. But I think it is important to bear in mind in all these discussions about the effectiveness of the civil service, that wider context. Well, well, we'll have to see. But thanks very much indeed for that, that last thought on that. And that is it for this edition of Inside Briefing. My huge thanks to Alex Thomas, Gemma Tetlow, and especially to Ben Shu. Great to have you all with us. If you enjoy this podcast, then head to IFG Live, our sister podcast channel. We've got some terrific recordings there, including a look at why Australian-style policies delight some British politicians. We've got an interview with Welsh First Minister Mark Drakeford. And to mark the fifth anniversary of the formation of the Department for International Trade, we've got a brilliant discussion on the merits, or otherwise, of the UK's trade strategy. And remember to check out all our work at instituteforgovernment.org.uk. Well, the summer holidays are approaching, sort of. Parliament will soon be rising. COVID cases definitely are rising. And levelling up is happening, we think. See you next week.